So, two weeks ago, we talked about this verse in Galatians 3.8, about how the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And the, two weeks ago, we, we talked about this unusual way of, of saying this, when Paul says that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. And the reason that that's kind of strange is because when that statement actually occurs, it's God speaking to Abraham. It's recorded in the book of Genesis, but when it's spoken by God, the Bible doesn't exist. So how can Paul say that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham? And as I pointed out, the reason is because to the minds of the New Testament writers, regularly, God says and Scripture says are equated. They are the same thing, so much so that they just habitually will switch one for the other. And it actually gives you insight into what the New Testament and the early church thought about the Bible. That it says, God says, Scripture says are interchangeable. Tonight, we're going to focus on the second part of this, which is the, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, because that's also kind of interesting, especially if you've grown up in a Christian church, you may have thought, well, the gospel begins with Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus going to the cross, or maybe it begins, if you're really theological, it might begin with his birth. How can you say that the book of Genesis or even before the book of Genesis was written, that God, speaking to Abraham, was preaching the gospel. Particularly if you go back in Genesis and look at what God says there, it doesn't say anything about Jesus dying. So it doesn't seem to be the gospel. How can we understand that? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's read this little section with a little more context, Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, and see why this interesting little phrase here, that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, actually helps us understand the whole Bible and helps us understand the whole Jesus. Because what I would submit to you is, if you don't understand what Paul's saying here, you won't understand the Bible and you won't understand who Jesus really is. I know that's bold, but let's get into it here and see. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he's arguing with them a little bit. We're picking up the middle of the argument. Uh, he says, speaking about God, does he, meaning God, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And we're going to pick that up again next week, this whole contrast between the law and faith, okay? Um, but then verse 6, he says, just as... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's a quote from Genesis. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray together and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your scripture, even this small portion. We pray, Lord, that the key here would help us to understand the Bible and Jesus. 
so that we could not just know more, but we could live differently and love differently. We pray that you'd send your spirit to that end for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. So we need the gospel to understand the Bible because what Paul is saying here is the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. And and when he says that, what he's showing us is that the gospel is the framework through which we understand all of scripture. What Paul's doing here, he's saying Abraham is the example of what it means to be saved by the gospel. Catch that. Abraham is the example Paul uses to explain what does it mean to be saved by the gospel and not by your own works. Gospel, meaning the good news. That word gospel was a word that usually was used of a military victory that was going to change the lives of the people who heard about it. That's a word. It's a big word. It's an important word. And Paul says, Abraham is a great example of someone who was saved by the gospel. But you might think, well, how can you say that? Because the gospel is about Jesus. Aha. What that must mean then is that the whole of the Bible, because this is Genesis after all that Paul's quoting, the whole of the Bible must be about the gospel. And that's true. That's the principle that he's laying down here. It's the only way that you can make sense of him saying that Abraham is the example of what it means to be saved by the gospel. He's in the very first book of the Bible. Already in the first book of the Bible, the gospel is there and it's being proclaimed. Do you understand that? The whole Bible is about the gospel. It's been well said, when you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, that in the old... The new is concealed, but it's there. And in the new, the old is revealed. Think of it not as two different things, but as one organically connected plant, which blossoms into its full beauty in the New Testament. But it's already there. As they say, you know, everything that is that oak tree is there in the acorn. It's all there, but you don't see it yet. That's what we have going on here. Paul is saying the story about Abraham is a story about the gospel. And I think that a lot of Christians don't really think that way. Again, I think they think of the gospel as something that begins with Jesus taking on flesh and coming into this world. Uh, I, I was thinking of this story years and years ago. This is going back a ways. Actually, when we were in seminary, Um, Back in the 80s, MTV News did a special hour-long show about the seven deadly sins. Are the seven deadly sins still relevant today? It was actually pretty interesting. I got a lot of quotes out of this um, for years because they had all these different celebrities and people talking about uh, the seven deadly sins and are they relevant? Do they still work? Whatever. Um, the, The only person I know for a fact was a Christian that was interviewed on that was a girl I knew. She used to go to my church here in in Franklin, and then she ended up getting one of the starring roles in Cats on Broadway and was there for years. And um, she gets interviewed, and I'm like, oh, great. Finally, there's a Christian who's going to be on this thing and and give some perspective. And then she said this. She she was asking, you know, about the sins of the fathers and if they're passed down to the children. She said, oh, yeah, all of my addictions come because of my dad. 
um, which isn't exactly what, you know, what, what they were asking. And then she goes, look, the way I think of it is, you know, God tried first with the Ten Commandments, and that didn't really work. And then he sent Jesus, and that was better, but we still have all kinds of problems. But the 12-step program is God's gift to the 21st century. Now, this is not, this is not to denigrate the 12-step program. I actually think it's a pretty helpful thing. Okay? But it is to say that's not really how Christians think of the Bible. But I don't think that her understanding was that unusual. Like God tried with the Ten Commandments. He tried to teach us how to live, and we didn't really get it right. Then Jesus came, and he kind of talked to us about how you need to understand God is a father who loves you, but we're still a mess. Like they, they, A lot of people see the Bible as a series of God trying over and over and over again and failing over and over again and coming up with plan B and then plan C and plan D and plan E. But what Paul's saying here challenges that whole framework and says, no, the gospel has always been the message of the Bible from beginning to end. Seeing the gospel is the way to understand the Bible. But seeing that the whole Bible is about the gospel and is about Jesus actually is also vital for understanding Jesus himself. Again, the gospel, the good news, did not begin with Jesus going to the cross. It did not begin even with his birth. And you actually need the whole Bible to really understand Jesus. You need the whole Bible to really understand Jesus. He is the conclusion of a story that's a huge story. How will you really understand the story if you just come in and start reading the last chapter? You guys watch Stranger Things? Don't worry, I'm not going to give anything away. Other than, here's all I'm going to say. So my wife and my daughter watched the first season, and I got left out. And by the time I could have jumped in, it was too late. But then when season two came on, I sat in the room and watched the first episode of season two. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And then I went back and I watched all of season one. <laughs> and then I watched the first episode of season two again. And of course, it made a whole lot more sense. It was more enjoyable. It was richer. Right? Like, I, there wasn't any, like, loose ends really for me when I watched just the first episode of season two by itself. There was no context. There was no story. There was no narrative arc. And that's what's like for a lot of people. If you think that the gospel begins with Jesus going to the cross, you miss the whole narrative arc. You don't understand the Bible, but you also don't actually understand all of who Jesus is either. I think um, a friend of mine, Charlie Peacock, used to say, you know, so often we think of the gospel as this little personal salvation story, and it is that. It's about how you can have salvation, how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's so much bigger than that. Don't trivialize it into a little me and Jesus personal relationship story. But we do that if we don't understand the full big picture. The Bible says that we started out with a good creation and that the point of that actually is not just for Jesus to save us and take us to heaven one day when we die, but actually for all of that good creation to be restored and redeemed. If you just start with Jesus goes to the cross to save me from hell, you end up trivializing what a huge story we have. 
So you don't really understand the Bible if you don't understand that the gospel is all through the Bible, and you don't actually understand Jesus unless you understand that he's all through it too. See, we believe Jesus is the point of the Old Testament, not just because Paul taught it, but actually because Jesus himself taught it. And now I want to take you to a passage here in Luke 24, and you may know this story, but it's worth reading again. This is after Jesus has died, and two of his disciples, two of his followers, are pretty discouraged. And they're walking, and Jesus actually comes up to them. This is after he's been resurrected, and he shows up. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? And uh, it's in, I put it on your outline here. We're going to pick it up at verse uh, 15. It says, while they were walk, talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near them and went with them. So he's like walking along. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these coming days or in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, and you can just hear the anguish in their heart, right? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they did not, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That would have been an amazing Bible study, huh? A little later, um, they asked asked Jesus, still not recognize him, to stay with them and to eat. And in verse 30, it says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So Jesus himself is the one who taught the early church who didn't understand the full significance of the scriptures, that they were all about him. And this wasn't the first time he'd said something like this. In an argument with some of those uh, religious leaders in John chapter 5, in the midst of this argument, Jesus says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now that's a bold thing to say to the Jewish leaders, because they thought if anybody understood Moses, it was them. Moses is in our camp, Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you actually don't understand Moses. The guy you think you're an expert in, you don't understand him. Why do I know you don't understand him? Because you don't think he's talking about me. 
And if you don't understand that Moses is talking about me, you don't understand what he's saying. So Jesus is bold about this, right? Now, why does it matter? Well, it matters for how you understand the Old Testament. Because what Jesus is saying is you don't understand, I don't understand any passage in the Old Testament unless I see how it points to him. Now, this is important. I know a lot of you have taken Old Testament class or understanding the Bible, and I talk to students all the time. We're like, well, we're just studying the historical perspective. And usually what that means is we don't believe that the people who wrote the Old Testament could have known about Jesus. Therefore, it's inappropriate to think that they were writing about Jesus. But what the Bible says is they actually wrote beyond what they even understood. Because the Bible is not just authored by humans. It's authored by God himself. And it's this amazing, miraculous mysterious thing, fully God's word and fully the words of human beings. Isaiah writes like Isaiah with his personality. Jeremiah writes with his personality, but it's all God's word. As soon as you can explain to me how Jesus can be fully God and fully man, well, then you can explain how the Bible can be fully the words of men and the word of God, but that's what it claims to be. And so it's not inappropriate or unscholarly to take the divine authorship of the Bible seriously. And Jesus himself is the one who's taught Christians, this is the way you're to read the Bible. This is the way you're to read the Old Testament. If you don't understand it pointing to Jesus, you don't understand it, Jesus says. That's strong, but that's what he says. We're not limited, actually, to what the original readers would have understood. It's important to understand what the original readers were understood. We don't, we don't just like throw that away, but we're not limited to that. Ed Clowney, who was a mentor and professor, if you know Tim Keller, then uh, his great mentor um, was Ed Clowney. And Ed Clowney said this one time. He says, there are great stories in the Bible, but it's possible to know Bible stories and miss the Bible story. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there. Nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. As a matter of fact, one of the most important battles in the history of Israel as a nation is not even mentioned in the Bible. So the, the Bible isn't just telling you the story of Israel. He says, if we forget the storyline... We cut the heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman. David becomes a Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. No, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He is the Lord's anointed. God chose David as a king after his own heart and in order to prepare the way for David's great son, our deliverer and our champion. And actually, David understands that. Because if you look at the story of David and Goliath, there are way more verses devoted to David's speech than to what he actually does. And you know what the heart of his speech is? The God who delivered me from the lions and the bears will deliver me from this Philistine. David wants you to get that focus. This is about God the hero. And when we tell the story another way, we misinterpret it, and we miss seeing God in his faithfulness. It also matters 
seeing Jesus in all the Bible, seeing the gospel is all about him. It also matters for how we interpret and apply the Old Testament to our lives. Because the big question when you read the Old Testament, is it primarily a bunch of stories about what we have to do? Or is it primarily one big story about what God has done and promises to do? And if you get this wrong, two-thirds of the Bible is lost to you. And you end up with moralistic Christian versions of Aesop's fables. And that's what happens. It's one of the reasons people don't even know what to do with the Old Testament. They read it and they're like, well, that seems kind of crazy and that seems kind of good. And so I guess I should do this but not do that. And yet the Bible doesn't seem to give you much guidance into which person you should emulate and which one you shouldn't. Because that's not the point. The point is, God is the hero in the midst of a lot of really wretched, weak people. Right? And, and I think so often we look at the Bible, particularly like children's Bibles, but maybe it's the way you still read the Old Testament, in this moralistic way. We read it as a bunch of rules combined with stories to give us examples how to live and how not to live. But again, you miss the point. God is the hero in the Bible stories, and God is not romantic about human beings. Even human beings that he's used powerfully, they're still presented as weak people with a huge God over and over again. You know, sometimes you'll, you know, you'll see these things and people will like try and explain them other ways. Like I, I hear people all the time say, well, my Old Testament professor was like, you know, there's these like things that get repeated that are just like sloppy editing. You know, like, you know, Abraham, like, basically, you know, doesn't want to, you know, admit that his wife is his wife, and then his son does the same thing. You're like, are you serious? Like, obviously, the Bible is saying, like father, like son, right? Like, people miss the narrative arc and the narrative art because they miss the big overarching point, which is God perseveres in keeping his promise, way back in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the whole tension that drives the narrative of the Bible is, will God keep that promise? And there are primarily two threats to that promise. One is, all of these other nations that are trying to wipe out Israel. And it's not just about wiping out Israel. It's about the satanic plan to stamp out the seed line through whom the Messiah will come one day. And God preserves that seed line through amazing things. But there's another great threat to that promise, and it's God's own people and their unbelief. And honestly, when you read the Bible carefully, you feel like that's the greater threat. There's places like in Jeremiah, God's like, I don't know what to do with you. You people have provoked my wrath. You don't listen to anything I say. I'm torn. My heart is torn because I'm a just God. But I've also promised to send the Messiah through Israel. What am I going to do? That's the tension. That's the drama that drives this story. You know, in our uh, Presbyterian hymnal, we have a, a wretched song. Not all hymns are good hymns. We have this one. Maybe you sang this. Have you ever sung Dare to Be a Daniel? No? Nobody? Oh, that's good. Um, 
The chorus goes like this. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Guys, that's not the point of the book of Daniel. It's so that you can be like Daniel. You want to be like Noah? Which Noah? The Noah that believes God and goes against the grain of the culture and builds the ark? Or the Noah that gets drunk and exposes his nakedness? You know, like all the heroes have those kind of flaws. And sometimes, you know, students come to Belmont and they hear about stories they've never heard. They, they read the book of Judges and they're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Well, yeah, it is. But you know what? If you didn't expect the Bible to be a bunch of good examples of people you should emulate, that wouldn't bother you so much. The real problem is you've never been taught how to read the Bible. You may get through some of your classes with your faith intact. The tragedy is often you won't really have ever learned how to read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And that's just tragic. It's one of the reasons I try to preach on something in the Old Testament almost every other semester. But finally, there's there's a practical problem with reading the Bible moralistically. And Tim Keller sums it up this way. He says, there is in the end only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me or basically about Jesus? In other words, is it basically about what I must do or basically about what he has done? Until I see that Jesus fought the real giants, sin, law, death, for me, I will never be able to fight giants in life. Until I see that Jesus makes the big sacrifices for me, I will never be able to make the normal sacrifices of life. Unless I can see him forgiving me on the cross, I won't be able to forgive others. Unless I see him as forgiving me for falling asleep on him, I won't be able to stay awake for him. As a model, Jesus and the rest of the Bible is a crushing, terrible burden. So reading the Bible Christocentrically, seeing Jesus as the heart of the Bible, is not just a trick of interpretation, but the key to new life. Do you know what the purpose motto statement of Belmont is? Christ is the measure of all things. Do you know what it used to be back when I started working here doing RUF? It was Jesus is the Christ and the model for personal behavior. What's wrong with that? There's nothing about him being the savior for moral failure. It's not really Christian. It's not really Christian except in a moralistic way. Jesus shows us how we are to live and we're to be good people, honest people, integral people. Well, that's fine, but that's not really Christian. Jesus is the measure of all things. That's much better. Of course, it's a question of how that gets worked out, of course. But, you know, that's, for a lot of people, that first earlier statement, for many, many, many years, was, was a statement that a lot of people thought, this is Christian. That's, that's how, when you end up reading the Bible, like it's just more examples of how you're supposed to live. And it's a great example profound example of missing the point. You know, if you take Bible classes or you've grown up in church without understanding the stuff I'm talking about tonight, that's a shame. But, you know, you're here tonight. And God in his providence has said, he doesn't want you to read the Bible that way anymore. Now, it's not easy. Um, It's one of the reasons you need to get in a Bible study. Like Wendy's Bible study on Monday nights, they're going through the book of Samuel. Right? And getting into this kind of stuff, talking about it. We're going to go through books of the Bible 
in RUF every semester. And we're going to do Old Testament a lot. But it's the kind of thing, we get together, let's talk about it. When you read the Bible, how does this... I remember years ago, I'll just close with this. I remember there was a, um, a student, she was reading Leviticus. And she was like, I just don't know what to do with this stuff. Like all these things that God is threatening. Like that just isn't like, I just don't get this. And, and what she basically was saying is like, I believe God is loving and just, but I don't know what to do about this. And the more I read this stuff in the Old Testament the more I wonder if he really is loving. I was like, don't you understand? Seeing Jesus as the center of this is the key to understanding the stuff that you think is an argument against God's love actually is a way to see his love. And here's what I mean. All that stuff about the curses of the covenant for those who disobey God, that's what Jesus took. The New Testament is actually very restrained in describing what happened on the cross. Do you know that? Even the detail that there were nails in his hands and feet is not in the New Testament at all. It's not in any of the Gospels. It comes from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. In other words, the Old Testament gives you more understanding of what it meant for Jesus to hang on a cross. It meant for him to be humiliated and shamed because in our sin, we had humiliated and shamed the one who loves us. And Jesus took that willingly. And so when you read all of those curses of the covenant that make you wonder if God is loving, what you actually are seeing is how loving he really is. Because Jesus took all of that. And when you see the law about how we are to live to glorify God and enjoy him forever, don't you see that you're getting a multifaceted description of Jesus's character? People are like, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The Bible tells you because the law is what Jesus always did. He said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. To me, it's like food. And you want to know? You're not limited to the four Gospels to understand what Jesus' love was like, what Jesus' obedience was like, what a beautiful human life looked like. The Bible is all about it. And I don't want you to miss two-thirds of the picture. There's a, when Kevin and I were growing up, there was always this guy in the radio, Paul Harvey. You met, you met Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey, I would listen to Paul. He was always on the, even the rock radio station, this little two-minute thing. He'd give a little tease. He'd tell a little bit of thing, and then he'd say, stay tuned for the rest of the story. And he had this really kind of funny voice like that. And then they would go to a commercial, and then he'd come back. And he'd always start with like a story, but he wouldn't tell you who the person was, and then it would turn out to be somebody you'd heard of, and you had no idea. And it was great. And that's, that's what we're saying tonight. Don't miss the rest of the story. Don't miss the rest of the story. Let's pray.